Hello, I'm Clement Paligaru, and welcome to Ear to Asia, the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with researchers who focus on Asia and its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. In this episode, is China's selectocracy the secret to its economic success? How do we explain China's economic miracle without taking into account the nature of its political system? In the four decades since the so-called opening of China in 1978, hundreds of millions of Chinese people have been lifted out of poverty, an economic feat without precedent. Yet the image of China's political order, with its one-party, non-democratic, and historically anti-capitalist structure, may seem at odds with the country's achievements. Some argue that China's success comes in spite of, not because of, its political system; that it's down to merely economic reforms and good policy, or that it grew from China's entrepreneurial culture, or that the astonishing economic and business expansion we've seen are thanks to factors like corruption and clientelism. But according to our guest on Ear to Asia, development economist Yang Yao, those factors can be found in other less successful developing economies, and so don't give us the whole story. He argues that China's practice of selecting rather than electing its leaders, together with ensuring a pragmatically disinterested government, offer real economic benefits and provide key lessons to other developing economies. Yang Yao is a professor at the China Center for Economic Research and the National School of Development at Peking University. He's published numerous articles and books on economic transition and development in China, and he's also a prolific writer whose work appears in the Financial Times and Project Syndicate. Professor Yao is in Melbourne as an Asia scholar at Asia Institute Center for Contemporary Chinese Studies. Yang Yao, thanks for joining us on Ear to Asia. Thank you, Clarence. Firstly, you claim that the ways that many, especially in the West, have tried to explain China's amazing record of economic growth over the last four decades don't stand the test of international comparison. What do you mean by that? I think that it's not just Western scholars, but also Chinese scholars. To me, I think they have all missed this international comparison aspect of China's economic growth. Let's just、uh, think about economic reform, right? China used to be a planning economy. After reform, China has been transformed, at least a mixed economy, capitalism plus economic planning. But that's a model that has been adopted by many, many countries. If you look around the world, which countries still have this planned economy? Probably you can only name one or two, right? So I don't think market can completely explain China's economic success. It probably is a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient. Then people will say, "Hey, it's because of Chinese culture. Chinese people work so hard." That may explain some aspect of China's success, but we have to admit most peoples in this world are hardworking people. They all work very hard. You go to Africa; African people work so hard. You go South Asia; they all work very hard. But not all the countries have succeeded. That's why I just came down to the political economy side to study the interplay of politics and political system and economic performance. So, what's different about China's system? What's unique about it? And this is the political system I'm talking、mm. about. 
Well, the transit system definitely is not a Western-style democracy, right? I can characterize it as a mixed polity. It certainly has democratic elements. Uh, we do have elections, particularly at the grassroots level. If you go to the village, village government is elected. Uh, by the people, and then we also have this indirect election system to elect what we call the people's delegates to the People's Congress, which is the legislative body in China. But those elections are indirect. We only elect those delegates up to the county district level, and up from there, delegates are elected by. Those representatives, but I think the distinctive feature of the Chinese political system is there is a central organization which is called the Communist Party of China or CCP.、Uh, the CCP controls the appointment for most、uh, local and central leaders. Those leaders are not directly elected by ordinary people like in a, a Western democracy. That's a distinctive feature and also defining feature of the Chinese system. And for that matter, I can also call the Chinese system a CCP system, Chinese Communist Party, Party system. system. Right. But the Communist Party is not a Western-style political party. Probably in the past it was, but now I don't think so. It has gone back to the Chinese tradition. You know, in historical China, we had this、uh, selection system called Keju. Keju means several exam system. So if you want to become government official, you take a Keju. Then if you succeed, you become government official, right? But now the Communist Party just、uh, takes、uh, that role. So the party selects young people into the party.、Uh, you become a Communist Party member, and if you want to enter the government, even if you are not a party member, you can do that. But you have to take the exam. And this is why you use the word selectocracy to、right. describe this unique political system. Exactly right. It's not a full-fledged democracy. So the CCP selects young people into the system. That also CCP controls the promotion of the government officials, and you have identified some gaps and some improvements. You see that can be made, but at the same time, the Chinese constitution does still claim to be open, meritocratic, and、mm-hmm. competitive. How、mm-hmm. does the constitution at this stage ensure that indeed those are followed through? That's actually one of the big myths to outsiders. And most people would believe that the Chinese system is closed because it's just a one-party system. But the problem is that they haven't realized the party is open. When I say the system is open, basically the party is open to anyone who is willing to work for the country, particularly to work toward the goal to make China great again. If you have that conviction and you are good enough. Then the party is going to take you into the system. It's open, but、uh, with a qualification. That's why I say it's、uh, meritocratic. You have to meet a certain standard in order to get in. That's also a defining difference between the Chinese system and、uh, a democracy. In a democracy, there are a lot of shortcuts,、uh, like in United States, right? President Trump、uh, could just、uh, take the shortcut. He didn't have any governance. 
experience, but he could become the president of the United States, not in China. And you're talking about a career shortcut there. Right. So the Chinese system is totally meritocratic. You have to meet a certain standards, otherwise you cannot get into the system. And also it's competitive because you have to compete with your peers in order to get into the system and get promoted in the system. Is there a tension between this process of political selection mm-hmm. uh, by the CCP and political representation of what the CCP stands for? So when I say the Chinese system is a mixed system, I also want to point out uh, we also have the People's Congress, the legislative body. Actually, by our constitution, the power only rests with in the People's Congress. So the delegates to the People's Congress should represent people. But you are right. In China, political representation and the selection process are just separate. It's not like in a democracy, particularly in a parliamentary system. In a parliamentary system, the leaders have to represent a section of the population. But in China, you know, the selection is through the Communist Party system. Representation is done separately. Where does China lie along the spectrum of democracy at one end and autocracy on the other? That's a good question. So if we say from zero to hundred, zero means autocracy, hundred means democracy, I would put China probably between 40 and 50. Professor Yao, you alluded to the historical roots. What are the historical roots of China's selectocracy? China started this meritocratic system in the Han Dynasty, Western Han Dynasty, which is actually started from 200 BC. So starting from there, we had a system of recommendation. So suppose you are a government official at the local level, at the county level, you are responsible to discover new talents, and you have to recommend the talents to the central government. So that's the recommendation system. But after several hundred years, this system just became corrupt because you recommend so. There is a kind of clientelism developed in that system. So then in Sui Dynasty, particularly in Tang Dynasty, we developed this Kerju system, examination system. So everyone can take this exam. Everyone can become a government official if you are prepared to learn, if you successfully pass the exam. So that system was in China for 1,500 years until just shortly before the fall of the Qin Dynasty. In 1905, that system was abolished. You have mentioned how officials are selected, but at the level of the individual, how do you become selected as a leader Mm -hmm. in China's selectocracy? There is a debate over there among economists and political scientists. One group of people believe that the selection process is based on this patron-client system. So political connections are very important in determining the promotion. Other group of people believe merits play a big role over there. I probably belong to the second group because I have done research on this, and we have found that merits do play a role over there. Of course, in our study, we mirror merits by leaders' capability to develop a local economy because that's the only mirror we can find. 
or systematic manner we can find across region and across time. And we find that if you grow your local economy faster than your peers, you're going to have a higher probability to get promoted. I'm not denying political connections are important. Political connections are important in every country. Let's think about the United States. When you have a new president, 3,000 positions are going to be changed. So that's kind of a political connection. That should not be the central issue. The central issue is whether the merits do play a role in the system and whether this role is significant enough. Right? If it's just a trivial, now, of course, we don't need to care about it. But I think there are quite a few robust evidence to show that merits do play a significant role. How does an individual actually make a career? And how long does it take? The Chinese system, to a large extent, takes your determination. You have to enter the system when you are really young, like after university graduation. For example, in our university, our university actually has a program with the central organizational department. Our graduates college graduates, master graduates, or even PhD graduates can volunteer to enter the system. So they go down to the grassroots level. They started from uh, where low government official uh, in the early 20s. And so they have to work there for 30 years in order to get to the top. But of course, many of them fail the competition. They just stop at the median level. Nowadays, many of them actually just quit because they just sense they don't have a chance to get promoted. So it's a long, long process. And for that, probably the system, to a large extent, becomes rigid. It's very hard for creative people to enter the system because you have to stay in the system for 20 years, 30 years. You have acquired a certain talents, which are quite important to run the country. But it also has uh, the downside, right? Because you, you don't have uh, creative people to enter the system. I'm not going to say that selectocracy is better than democracy on every aspect. Definitely, there are both uh, pros and cons in both systems. I'm Clement Faligaru, and on Ear to Asia, we're talking with development economist Professor Yang Yao about the influence of China's political system of selectocracy on the Chinese economic miracle. Professor Yao, the Chinese Communist Party, as its name suggests, has clear ideological roots, yet you argue that the party has been depoliticized. How deliberate has this depoliticization been? It used to be a political party in a period of time. It was purely ideologically driven, particularly in Cultural Revolution, and that was a disaster. I think the change has been brought out by the reform process. At the end of the 1970s, Deng Xiaoping became the leader of the party, and he was very pragmatic. So he made this clear, we have to develop our economy. So this is in an international context that he's speaking. Right. He's a great guy. He had this international perspective. He was comparing China with the rest of the world, particularly with East Asia. He had this idea that China lacked behind. So what can we do? We catch up by developing our economy. So in the 80s, we had a series of changes. Then in the 90s, we had this grand reform process to privatize our SOEs, state-owned enterprises. 
actually, in that 10 years period of time, many people didn't know this. We actually privatized about 80% of the SOEs. Of course, we still have a problem with SOEs, but we got rid of most of the SOEs in this 10 year period of time. Because of all those changes, the party just could not still claim its ideologically based party. I mean, the party used to claim is a working class party. But in those 10 years period of time, 50 million SOE workers lost their jobs. How can you still claim you only represent the working class? So by 2002, the party just announced three representations, which means、uh, the party represents、uh, the fundamental interests of all Chinese people, not just、uh, the working class, and also the most advanced culture, and also the most advanced productive forces. So the so-called three representations. You have also labeled the Chinese government as disinterested,、mm-hmm. and that that's a good thing. What do you mean by that? In any society, you find struggles between groups of people. You have poor people, you have rich people. That's a simple division, right? So in Western democracy, you have parties that represent different groups of people. But in China, the CCP does not represent any groups of people. So in that sense, I call the CCP disinterested because it's disinterested. It has a free hand to do whatever it believes that's good for the country. In terms of economic growth, it can put more resources for long-term economic growth. In many cases, it can be biased in terms of the policies. It gives a lot of resources, for example, to the SEZs, special economic zones. I still remember 30 years ago when I was young. I really hated the SEZs because they enjoyed so many preferential treatments from the government. We outside the SEZs really hated them, but it turned out the SEZs were so important for China's opening up. From the outside, we do tend to see China's central government as all-powerful, and that it sets the rules at all levels. But how have local and regional governments in China played a role in China's economic growth? Many people haven't realized that China is the most decentralized country in terms of economic activities. Local governments have a lot of says for local economic affairs. Uh, the Chinese system is、uh, very interesting. Economically, is really decentralized. Politically, is probably the most centralized country in the whole world. So that's a strange combination. But that has been kind of a solution for such a country. You know, China is a unitary system. Of course, in the past we had a kingdom, we had the emperor. Emperor ruled the whole country, and then we had CCP. This is a vast, vast country, and we don't have a federal system. We have a unitary system. But in a unitary system, you have to solve the incentive problem. How to give incentive to local government officials? So then we have found, oh, a current decentralization can give those guys a lot of incentives. But on the other hand, the central government has to control those guys. So by controlling their promotion, the central government just control them. It turned out to be a quite interesting and effective system to give local government officials freedom and then also the central government control power. So, what are the limits then to the actual power that Beijing, as a center of government, has at that local and regional level? The limit is actually on the economic front. There's a lot of bargaining between the local governments and the central government. 
and believe me, in many cases, the local governments win. There's only one case in which the central government won. That's our tax reform in 1993. At that point in time, the central government budget became so small. The budget was only about 20% of the total government budget. The central government didn't have any power to do any redistribution, let alone, you know, spending on investments. So that was a kind of a dangerous point for the central government. So the, finally, the central government decided to centralize some of the revenues. After that tax reform, central government controls half of the regular budget, local government the next half. But local governments also have extra budgetary income, in many cases as large as their regular income. So the central government, in terms of revenue, is still weak. And yet you did say that it still controls the promotion of officials. Right. Now, does that mean that it's about economic growth and you'll be promoted? Right. For a long time, it was just economic growth. That's the only criterion. But it gradually has been changed. I think over the last 10 years, the party wants to put more criteria into the promotion. For example, now uh, environmental protection has become really, really important. If you have an environmental disaster, almost for sure, you just finished. You cannot get any promotion. What are some of the internal contradictions or challenges that China's political system still needs to work on? I want to mention several. One is that probably the CCP needs to develop a new theory for what has been done right in the last 40 years. So the CCP still has this orthodox Marxist doctrine in its formal document. It's not that related to reality. That's, I think, a huge challenge for the CCP. The second, as I said, representation and selection are separate. We need to enhance the representation side to follow our constitution, to allow those people who have the capability and also who have the willingness to serve as people's delegates to enter the system. And we need to strengthen the selection process to make uh, the criterion kind of more broadly based, not just a kind of growth. Professor Yao, what are the challenges of researching this area? A lot of challenges, uh, I mean, you know, my research is both theoretical and empirical. Uh, theoretically, it's very hard to find a ready model to study China. Political scientists and economists have a ready model to study democracy, for example, the median voter theorem to study democracy. But for China, we don't have a theory. I myself have to create a new theory. For the empirical side, you have to collect a lot of data, That's really time-consuming. The good thing is that I really have good students, master's students, PhD students, and also some undergraduates. So I can rely on them to collect good data. So now I'm working with two young professors and about 15 graduate students. So we have built up a team. So we collect a huge amount of data so we can work on all sorts of things in China. Professor Yang Yao, many thanks for joining us on Ear to Asia. Those are very interesting insights and I uh, appreciate your company today. Thank you very much. We've been speaking about China's unique political system of selectocracy with development economist Professor Yang Yao from the China Center for Economic Research and the National School of Development at Peking University. 
Eat to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find out more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. It would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2017, the University of Melbourne. I'm Clement Paligaru. Thanks for your company.